This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You know, if there's one thing that I've learned during my six years at Christianity Today, it's that Christians rarely agree on everything. Or anything, but mostly everything. Further, the closer you think you are to finding agreement and consensus among Christians, and find what some, or what looks to some as even more nuanced, and others splitting hairs. So, for instance, take an issue like communion. On the one hand, I can't think of a single Christian who doesn't believe that participating in communion is a key part of what it means to practice one's faith. But for some Christians, this is the focal point of weekly gatherings. Others can go months without partaking. For some, using whatever food and drink is around the house counts as the body and blood of Christ. Others need their priests to have blessed the physical products. And of course, COVID-19's interruption of church services has introduced other questions about digital versus physical options. For someone like me, who not surprisingly works at a place like CT that seeks a bigger tent approach, this level of theological detail and precision can at times be mind-boggling. Here at CT, we really want Christians to better connect with each other and work with each other across real theological diversity. And this is something that's not necessarily in the church's natural skill set. One recent look at how the church might do better is outlined in Gavin Ortland's new book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage, which asks when doctrine should divide us and when unity should prevail. We'll hear from him on the theological work he's done to help Christians both stay true to their convictions and better serve the entirety of the body of Christ overall. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. vacationing in the beautiful mountainous national parks glacier <laughs> and yellowstone hopping into the crown the jewels of the you know uh, national the american parks. west no thanks for taking time out of watching bears and mountains to do a pod that's awesome i'm sure i'll come back and have some stories to share with different people about the stuff i've seen out here all right ted maybe you can just give us a little bit more background on gavin and then we can say hi to our guest Kevin Orland is a pastor. He is pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He has been incredibly prolific lately. In addition to this book that we're talking about today, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, the case for a theological triage. In the last few months, he has also published Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, Ancient Wisdom for Current Controversy, as well as Anselm's Pursuit of Joy, another great book, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. It's all since last November that these all have been published. So I'm thrilled that he was able to find time to join us on the podcast. So thanks, Gavin, for coming on. Hey, great to be with you guys. Okay, Gavin, we are going to ask you lots of lots of theology questions, but I do have to ask you a writing question, which is, what is your method for just doing all this research and typing it out? Do you have some sort of secret time management skill that you want to tell us? <laughs> no, sometimes people ask me about that. And the truth <laughs> is, I don't have any one prescribed method. Each book was written a little differently. And sometimes I get so much involved in it when I get to the end, I can't even remember (laughs) how the research has, has been done exactly in terms of like the protocol. I think the main thing for me has just been, I I'm 
passionately curious about these things and I really think they're important. So that tends to kind of drive me on. They were all written sequentially. And then, you know, we kind of had talked about this a moment ago, but they sometimes books come out around the same time, but they're written at different times. So Oh, you, you didn't did. write all four of these books simultaneously? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But I hope they help people who read them. All right. Well, let's talk about the book that brought you to our show this week. I'm curious if we could just start with who the audience of this book is for. Did you write it for American evangelicals, global evangelicals, all 2 billion Christians in the world? Who are you trying to reach with this? I'd say the emphasis is on evangelical Protestants, especially in America. But I did interview a number of pastors in the writing of the book. I didn't want to rely on just my own sort of anecdotal experiences for determining what are the doctrines that people tend to fight about. So I did six or seven interviews with pastors. One of those pastors was in Singapore and another was in Australia. So that was helpful to get a little bit of a sense of some of the issues that they were facing in their congregations because I didn't want to assume that I already know, you know, what what issues are causing challenges for people. So mainly written from my own context, not because I desire to do that, but mainly because that's the context I'm just most familiar with. But I hope that Christians around the world could benefit from it, and perhaps even non-evangelical Christians could find it relevant in some way. There's a really helpful chapter in the middle of the book where you kind of go through your own journey of, of having to do some of this uh, theological triage and figuring out not only what it is you believe, but how important it's been and what that's meant for your role, both participating in churches and leading churches. I also see something going on kind of culturally. This book is published in, in connection with the Gospel Coalition. There does seem to be a, a large-scale movement of what Colin Hansen once identified as kind of the young, restless, reformed crowd. I initially wrote that as a major article in Christianity Today. And there seems to be a movement now out of what a lot of people have called kind of that cage stage Calvinism into a little bit more of an open-handed, okay, I don't need to fight about every doctrine. But that's led to, I think, some people having kind of fairly public questions about, okay, what what is it that I get into the cage to fight for? And what is it that I can say, okay, you know, that, that's interesting that you have that view and I have my I have my view and talk about it, but we're not necessarily going to divide over it. Is there a cultural moment that makes this book particularly key right now in, in 2020 that, that you're at, that you see? It looks to me like both with what you're describing there, which I completely track with your thoughts and what you described, as well as just broader in in the church in general, and even just in our culture. Yes, the ability to have courteous, respectful, principled disagreement seems to be fading to whatever extent we ever had that. (laughs) It's not a great human tendency in general. To whatever extent we have been able to do that, it seems to be less so these days. And I've done a lot of reading of Jonathan Haidt, who's a secular psychologist who talks about the sociology of polarization. And he's just talking about why it is that we have this human tendency to kind of clump up with a tribe or a group and and demonize the opposition. And unfortunately, there is a tendency toward that. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, I feel that we see that in the church. Hopefully, my book, you know, the heart behind it is to try to speak to that and try to encourage us to, on the one hand, learn how to love amidst disagreements and learn how to show humility amidst disagreements, but without swinging so far to the other side of the pendulum that we just sort of sweep away doctrinal issues that that are important. That's what I'm trying to encourage, uh, kind of a balanced mentality like that. So easy, right? Just very... 
anyone could have obviously written this book. No, but I think what you're saying is really important. And I'm glad that, you know, we narrowed who the audience is for at the beginning, which is, I do really think it's important for evangelicals to constantly be learning how to talk to each other. And I know you were kind of asking yourself right there, if there has been some, you know, maybe golden era of civility. And it made me just wonder the extent to which sometimes like civility is just less people talking. (laughs) And we have so many voices these days. And I think that can be part of the reason. So I'm curious, Gavin, as you started writing this book, would you say that American evangelicals care enough about doctrine, too much about doctrine, or not enough? It's such a hard question to give one answer to because it looks like evangelicalism has become such a complex, kind of variegated thing. It's like, on the one hand, there's many circles within evangelicalism where there is such a tightening, and from my vantage point, a narrowness that I would say by the standards of kind of global, lowercase c, Catholic Christianity, we've splintered off from the majority of Christians and most of whom would not be acceptable to us because we've got such tightness. On the other hand, in many other circles, you see such a kind of broad, mild attitude about all doctrines. And so it looks like it's the same thing that Jonathan Haidt is observing in our culture, which is very troubling to me. I mean, I I feel anxiety about this when I think about the long-term implications of just the polarization and more people getting their information from cable news and social media and more and more living in a silo where you're not respectfully listening to and dialoguing with people of an ideological difference. You're not engaging across those boundaries. I guess I'd say my worry is that evangelicals are polarizing just like our culture. I don't remember who once said, you know, everyone's a fundamentalist on something. There's something that everyone's going to kind of say, oh, you know, everyone thinks that they're open-minded on a lot of things. So they hit that one thing and, you know, who knows what, who knows what might be, but they'll say, oh no, 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 you can't that's worth dividing over. And so it's helpful to kind of ask those questions about like, how do you decide what's what's worth dividing over? And that's where you've got not just a one-two schema worth dividing over and not worth dividing over, but you kind of divide these things into kind of a, a fourfold group. Can you just kind of quickly, for those who haven't read the book, summarize that kind of the four groups? Yeah, sure. And just to explain the term triage as well, this is a medical term kind of used as a metaphor for a system of priorities in doctrines. So the first rank doctrines and this is, of course, not the only way it could be done, but this is one way that it you know, might be a helpful starting point for thinking about how to prioritize different doctrines. The first rank doctrines would be those that are broadly around the realm of orthodoxy. They separate Christianity from something other than Christianity. The second rank doctrines would be issues that relate to maybe like denominational differences. They're important doctrines, but they don't make you a Christian, but they might be so important that we couldn't be a part of the same local church or something like that. The third rank doctrines would be doctrines that they matter. We shouldn't just brush them aside as a matter of irrelevance, but they don't need to divide us. And I argue in the book, they don't need to divide us at any level. And then the fourth rank doctrines would just be things that don't matter at all. The reason I find it helpful to in some contexts, have more buckets like that than just two, you know, essential and non-essential, is just because something can be not essential to the gospel, but still matter. 
and still be important. We've talked a little bit about communion already, for example. Well, that's really important, but it's not a, an orthodoxy issue. The heart behind that is not to have a, a technical way of thinking about theology that's really formal and is for seminaries. This is really a practical thing of in local churches. How do we have less church splits unnecessarily? How do we have less pastors fired unnecessarily? How do we have more unity and less fighting on social media. And I think having a system of priorities might be helpful for that. Getting back to that question of of triage, I am interested in the context. So a lot of this is that question of when you divide, you you raise a bunch of questions early on in the book about like, for example, maybe you've signed a statement of faith, you work at a Christian organization, you've signed a statement of faith that has a line in there about, you know, end times theology that over time you've kind of started a question or moved away from. The mm-hmm. question is, hey, should I kind of go to my boss and say, hey, I don't, I don't believe this anymore. And at, at what point have you kind of crossed the Rubicon on that? Or do you need to cross the Rubicon on that? That kind of thing is really interesting to me. The term triage, obviously, this is something that's often used in emergencies and then war. And it is not necessarily everyone's job. Usually there is a a kind of a triage officer whose job it is to make those kind of triage calls so that the individual doctors don't don't have to make some of those calls. They can just focus on some of their, their healing work. So I guess one thing I wonder is, does Paul's parts of the body play a role here in triaging some of these questions? I'm wondering if there's some people for whom theological triage is particularly important, and for other people, they might rightfully be focused on and enthusiastic about non-essentials or even the kind of unimportant, the matters that are unimportant to gospel witness and and ministry Mm -hmm. collaboration. There may be some limitations with the metaphor of triage. Part of me wanted to not think of it in the subtitle, but put it in the book just because I don't want someone's mind to go. When they hear that term, they start to think of something really technical, or the metaphor could just bring up images that may start the conversation and not the most helpful starting point. But but it also has some benefits as a metaphor. Certainly, there may be some in the body of Christ who may be able to play a role that's particularly useful for helping the rest of us think about this. At the same time, I do think there's enough passages in the New Testament that talk about forbearance and patience for other Christians, love for other Christians, living in unity, living in humility. I'm thinking of like Philippians 2 and Romans 14 and other places like that, that it seems to me that at the most basic level, it's something that every Christian should at least be working at in some way of just thinking, you know, how do I live in unity with those who maybe are at the different church down the street? And maybe we are not going to attend the same church, but is there some way I can show care for that person in a discernible and meaningful way and love for that person? Because part of the idea and one of the ideas in the book that I'm emphasizing, and that really struck my own heart as I was writing, is that I think the scripture calls us to love every single other member of the body of Christ, no matter how strong our differences may be with them on secondary and tertiary doctrines. And I think that love needs to be, I mean, Jesus said, all all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. And he's not saying that just to the Baptists or the Presbyterians or something like that. That's something common to all of those who are of the people of Christ. I do hope that maybe not in a completely fleshed out way, but on, in a basic way, I think every Christian will at least think about this, is how do I show love amidst disagreement to others in the body of Christ? Gavin, I'm curious, you know, you laid out this type of tier of relative importance here, and I'm just going to go off of what I see on social media in terms of what seems to rile up Christians. And we're obviously right now in a big conversation about racial injustice, right? There's a lot of themes that have to relate to that that are directly in scripture, but whether or not it is quote unquote theological issue, 
might be, I don't know what, I don't know the best thing to say. It's not what I would necessarily consider something like communion, right? Or if you believe how you believe about angels or what you believe about biblical literacy or something like that. When Christians are arguing about stuff that is more maybe on the practical application end or has to do with culture, that it seems to be where things get, I don't know, a little bit more personal and oftentimes a little bit more nasty. I'm just curious, how might your ideas help Christians rethink about how to have those types of conversations in particular, the ones that have to do with some of the cultural stuff that we're arguing and wrestling with. Morgan, are you referring to something like, you know, we, we I heard this a lot a few months ago. There's a lot of people on my Twitter feed saying, hey, if your pastor did not directly address killing of George Floyd this week, you're in the wrong church. You should go find another church. Is I think that, that's an it, example, but I'm also just thinking about the arguments that Christians are having over like critical race theory right now or Marxism. And those are conversations that are being obviously had at length with Christians um, to each other that they're arguing. It's theological connection does not necessarily seem as obvious at first. Direct, not, yeah. Yes. I'm just yeah. curious how Gavin would process having those types of conversations since they seem to be a lot of the fuel for Christian frustration at each other these days. It's been my observation as well, even at my own church, that the practical and cultural issues are often more divisive right now, it seems, than theological doctrines. I've mm-hmm. commented to more than one person recently that how and, mm-hmm. and whether one wears a mask is more controversial than the deity of Christ. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, yeah. People are more in, emotionally invested in that. And I will tell you that being a pastor during the pandemic has been extremely challenging for maintaining unity because there's such different perspectives in the body of Christ about not just masks, but the whole thing and and how we should be responding, relaunching, when to relaunch. So many practical questions. It's extremely challenging. So my heart really goes out to other pastors right now. It's a challenging time. I would say this book, so people won't be disappointed when they read it, it really is focusing on theology. I, I explain in the introduction that I am not, it's not a book on social issues. I, I'm focusing on specifically doctrinal matters, but the principles of the book, what I'm what I'm laying out in the first two chapters, I hope, is a framework for how trying to find a balanced mentality where on the one hand we have a backbone and we are willing to say about something like Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. I think that if there's nothing about which we will say, here I stand, I can do no other, then that's a problem. And on the other hand, of course, we see the dangers in the opposite direction of just the the lovelessness and the meanness that so many Christians display. And as you put it earlier, splitting hairs on so many things. I hope those principles are relevant. I hope they're helpful on some of the issues we're facing right now as a nation, say the issue of racism, think those principles could help us think about an issue like that of, on the one hand, encouraging us not to shy away from the Martin Luther courage. It is tempting to not speak out on an issue when you know you'll face blowback and courage is so needed. And I've I've been processing this on Twitter a little bit in my own personal responses to George Floyd's death and other related issues that we're working through as a culture. I, and basically, I've just made a decision personally over the last two months even, just I'm never going to not speak out. I mean, I always had that decision earlier too, but I've it, it's been crystallized in my heart. I will speak out to address the sin of racism and do everything I can do, which may be very limited, but I'll do my best to address that. And then at the same time, 
recognizing that in the nuances of strategy and how we go about that, there does need to be love. And so there are some people who are blasting away that if you're not speaking out on social media, you're a coward or you're not doing something right. And I think we do need to have a little more grace. Social media, number one, is not always the best context in which to speak out. And number two, there needs to be a little bit of grace for different people to speak out according to their own calling and gifting and context and so forth. So there can be a lot of self-righteousness that develops around some of these issues. So those are just some brief thoughts about this, but gosh, I'm sure we could keep going for hours about it. On that theological question, appreciate in in the book, I think that the impulse for a lot of evangelicals is to say, well, yeah, there's a lot of issues that, you know, theological issues that kind of come out of the Bible or that we've added on since the Bible was put together. Those issues that are kind of at that, you know, essential level or are kind of the stuff that the Bible's clear about. But that's not quite where you go with that. You are a little bit more gospel issues in that first, first level. And then other Bible issues are kind of some of that second level. Can you help me understand a little bit about how you might go about distinguishing between uh, a Bible issue and a gospel issue? I give a list of criteria for how to rank doctrines, and it's a briefer one that I say, this is just entry level. We need to have more criteria too, but it's a starting point. And one of those is how clearly something is taught in the scripture. Another has to do with how it's logically related to the gospel. Third is how it's practically relevant to the church. And then the fourth is the witness of the historical church. And I think the reason I'm not just reducing to the Bible alone is, well, here we get into some of what I've written about elsewhere in, in my conviction about the value of theological retrieval, which is drawing from church history and doing doctrine. And even as Protestants, I think there's great value in that. But theological triage is a practical matter. It's not just a a matter of studying the Bible and doing our best. It's a matter of what actually will affect the kingdom of God. And there are some things that are taught about in scripture, but the level of clarity about it is such, or the level of relevance of it is such, that it may not be the kind of thing we have to divide over. Being loud in the morning, for example. You know, yeah. <laughs> a proverb on that doesn't necessarily mean, okay, you were allowed, uh, you know, you and I are done, or we yeah. cannot walk together. You mentioned theological retrieval and the role of history. I am curious if you see a role in the creeds as a way. This is a personal story. You know, my wife and I were having a conversation about, you know, those feel this very issue of what would we divide over? I, what she would say, what would I, you know, bleed or die to death over? And she's like, kind of for me, it comes down to the creeds. And, you know, it's like, if it's in the creeds, I'll bleed or die to death on that. But other than that, I, you know, let's have a conversation. And I said, well, I mean, the creeds can be funny things, you know, the, the church divided over this, adding uh, the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. I mean, are you going to bleed or die to death for that and the son line? It's really okay. She's like, Okay, I wouldn't bleed or die, die to death on Filioque, but Filioque is a special case, so maybe not that. The basic question for me is, are the creeds helpful in identifying some of these core issues, or is the criteria a little bit different? I would see the creeds as very helpful, but not as an exhaustive sort of manual. I mean, there are some people who think of, so if we take some of the, maybe we take the three earliest and most ecumenical creeds, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian creeds, these are very important, especially with regard to the topics they were designed 
to address. So like the Trinity and the deity of Christ, I would see these as extremely important and as useful standards for us to use to kind of figure out, yeah, what is kind of the common core of Christianity, those those first rank issues on doctrines like that. Sometimes when people use the creeds, you know, they'll say, well, this particular social issue isn't addressed in the creeds. Therefore, it's an open-handed issue. And that I do want to bring the reminder that the creeds were written in a particular historical context. They weren't intended as an exhaustive statement for all time about everything. They don't really get into, for example, issues like justification. Those came later in church history where they were more relevant. And sometimes when, so when people say, this issue isn't in the creeds, therefore it should be open-handed. Sometimes it's helpful to say, well, neither is this one. Is right. this an open-handed issue? You know. And so I would see them as very foundational, but not exhaustive. And then I would say with the broader point here of the value of retrieval, my own testimony on this has been simply the more I've read church history, the more I've gotten perspective. It's kind of like traveling to other countries and then you understand your own culture more. You know, when you go to a counselor and you learn more about your own family dynamics and you understand it more objectively, American evangelicalism has some eccentricities. We have some things that sure. we tend to fight over that most Christians throughout history haven't, or vice versa, things we just neglect that other Christians have considered really valuable. And so that's actually been the greatest tool for me personally. And I do do a lot of that in this, in the Finding the Right Hills to Die on book as well, just looking back at, you know, what did the church fathers have to say about mm -hmm. this? That's very helpful, and it can sometimes just give us perspective today. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. You know, as I've looked at Christianity Today's history, to see the ways in which some of that has, has changed over time. I mean, the creation of Christianity Today, one of the first issues came up was, are we going to take a stance on 
end times theology. There was a lot of people who were, who were coming out of a very much, or coming, they were still very much in that kind of dispensational premillennial view of end times and saw it as as foundational. A lot of work had, had gone into showing that as an issue of first order importance. Christianity Day also was heavily founded by a lot of these Presbyterians who had a, a different understanding of the end times. We're not on board with that premillennial dispensationalism. And so CT needs to be a place where we treat that as something that Christians can just agree to disagree on. In fact, they had an agreement early on that we're not even going to publish articles about end times theology. And there were a lot of people who said, well, if you're going to, if that's your take, I'm just not going to be part of of Christianity Today. In fact, first person who was asked to be Christianity Today's editor, Wilbur Smith, said that he that he would not edit Christianity Today because CT yeah. wasn't going to take a strong stance on on that end times and treat it as as kind of core core gospel issue. This is one thing that's that's kind of come up in, in some of our work at Christianity Today is this question of how much does a current major conversation mean that Christians end up needing to divide, even though people say, you know, that is not necessarily something that I would put on the, the top 20 items that I would create as a, as a, as a divisive issue. In the 50s or you know, the, in, the, in the turn of the last century, virgin birth was kind of the shibboleth, that doctrine that if you could not affirm the virgin birth, it probably meant that you also held a whole lot of other doctrines that were incompatible with, with what people considered orthodox Christianity. You know, now marriage, I mean, to affirm same-sex marriages in, in the church is one of those issues that people are saying, you know, why are you making this a, you know, first order issue? And the response has been, well, we didn't make this first order issue, but there's a cultural conversation here. And we feel that, it, you know, your your change of marriage is both representative of the way in which you understand the relationship between Christ and the church, and also the way in which you understand the role of scripture. And so that kind of works as a stand-in for a whole host of first-order issues. At least that's been the argument. I'm wondering about how much you think kind of current debate, accepting some of the issues, you know, like the, some of the racial justice things we mentioned a second ago, how much do you think current theological debate and kind of current, when things become kind of really big conversations in the church, how much does that affect the way in which we do theological triage when a doctrine can take on additional baggage of representing other doctrines? Let me say, first of all, I really appreciate what you were saying about CT's approach to the millennium and end times issues. And that's been a specific thing I've thought about a great deal as well, where it seems as though our own context with kind of the history of American evangelicalism, especially like up until like the mid 20th century, has emphasized an issue that historically has the conversation's been totally different. In fact, the, the doctrine that has been so central and so emphasized didn't even exist for most of church history. You guys approach on that. On this question, I have my brief feeling about it is, and I'm open to keep considering this, is on the one hand, I think it'd be utterly impractical to deny that a litmus test issue can ever exist or that the current conversation can never sort of influence a doctrine into kind of becoming a wedge issue. I mean, it does happen. And it'd be impractical to think that, no, let's just take every issue completely objectively as if it were a timeless matter. I don't think we can do that. I think it's reasonable. I mean, J. Gresham Machen treated the virgin birth as a litmus test in the 1920s about whether someone held to a supernaturalistic worldview or a modernist worldview. And that's reasonable. He gave reasons for that. He, he gave arguments for why the virgin birth can function in that capacity. The other side of it, though, and where I have a little worry about how that could play out, is we have to allow for the nuances and treat each individual on their own terms and not make a blanket sort of evaluation where it's like, okay, that issue means this, 
it's a slippery slope. Therefore, if someone says this, I know where they're headed. I don't even need to talk with them. I'm right. very concerned about that. So I certainly want to encourage the kind of careful conversation and attention to detail that I think love requires. Sorry, I'm, we're, I'm going a little bit down a rabbit trail here, Morgan, but stick with me for a second here. I am curious, your, your book talks about the need for us to always be engaged the person and not just the doctrine when we're having some of these conversations mm-hmm. and to really have love for an opponent that we may be debating or who may disagree with us on that. I am interested in that resonates with me with what you said about the virgin birth. Cause I I'm thinking of these various stories where someone simply was arguing that, that a, the translation in Isaiah would be better translated young woman shall conceive. And it's still affirming that Mary was a virgin, but saying, yeah, you know, the translation may work better here. And of course, then is thrown in with people who deny that the virgin birth of Christ. So the importance is to ask what the the person you're debating actually believes rather than saying, what camp do they jump into? And that camp is bad because of X. At the same time, I'm increasingly anxious about, this is part of the current conversation, about individualizing everything. And, you know, there's this big pushback against kind of a, you know, European or white over-individualization of Christianity. Is there a concern, not that we would, you know, love individuals too much, but that the debating your opponent as an individual contributes to this kind of hyper-individualism that may be a problem in American evangelicalism? Whenever I do see the, hey, treat people as individuals, not just as representatives of, you know, an idea, at the same time that I'm reading a lot of what I'm reading about the critiques of American individualism and the way in which that's infected some of our theological approach. I just wonder if there's interplay there. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm, I'm going to guess that there probably is a relationship there. And certainly individualism is a major problem for American evangelicals. I would just need to think more about that, to think about what kind of causal relationship there could be between treating in doctrinal disagreement, dealing with an individual, and then how that might relate to the broader thing. I would say just that I do think it's important because so many people fail to do that. They treat you as they put you under the label. You know, Kierkegaard said, label me and you negate me. And there is that such a worry of that. So when I think of treating someone as an individual, I mean, think, listen for the nuances of their specific view. Don't impute onto them what you had in your conversation with somebody else who went under the same label. They're, they may be a little different. It may play out differently for them. And that kind of stuff, I think, is just basic to what Christian charity requires of us. So Gavin, I think this is related to what Ted was saying, but I wanted to talk briefly about guilt by association, but also just the communities that increasingly I feel like personalities spend time with. So obviously, (laughs) right now you're appearing on our podcast, for instance, and books that we're choosing to review and the communities and people that you're talking with on Twitter and so forth. I do feel like that there's a sense of outrage that can happen at various times when we feel like people who are part of our communities and representing particular theological tenets are in spaces that we might not feel abide by our convictions or that they should abide by those people's convictions. And so I'm curious how you sort through all of that. You know, if you were going to go on and appear on someone's podcast who is a Christian, let's say, but they maybe held significant different values than you, would you feel like you need to put up a disclaimer (laughs) or to tell them that? One of the things that I thought was interesting that we've talked about at CT before about how 
interviewing people who flat out aren't Christians or including their writing in CT on different occasions can often be less confusing to our readers or our listeners than including Christians who have views that we would not agree with. Right. It can get really confusing fast, especially when someone, because of their convictions on one thing, can feel like a very convenient ally, right, in the moment, but maybe later on comes back to haunt you. I had to think about this at a personal level of few years ago, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, in connection to a couple of podcasts with one in particular with someone who is very much on the liberal side of Christianity to the point where we have some pretty fundamental differences about how even we define the gospel, the most basic levels. In that context, I just had to think that through it. I very quickly came to the view of I'm happy to do the podcast with them. And I think my views are clear enough. I've written on the issues involved here. In this case, it was issues of sexuality and marriage. People, not unclear where I stand. And by appearing on the podcast, I didn't feel as though I would be in any way endorsing. I just, I just thought of it as a conversation. The way I've thought about this is I do think there are some contexts in which actually avoiding someone is warranted simply because of the pastoral epistles and some of those verses where in a case of extreme heresy or sin, Paul does, you know, give some directives to stay away from someone after a warning and those kinds of things. And even those need to be thought through in terms of to whom were they written and what contexts were envisioned there. So I, I, I leave a little wiggle room for that. In the general picture here, I'd say, I think we must fight the tribalism of our times by understanding and modeling and I that listening and talking is not compromise and to engage with someone of a different perspective can be an expression of humility can be ex an expression of charity and it can be a wonderful occasion to learn and so one of my hopes is as a pastor as with our church we can model that for people you know get together with someone who genuinely thinks differently and have a humble engagement with them and not see that as a, a compromise and then of course there will be criticisms but I hope I'm willing to just take the criticisms because I don't I don't think it's healthy for us to avoid talking to people when we disagree with them I think that contributes to the polarization of our times this may be the last question here, but I'm wondering, when we have a, a schema like this, which I think is a, is really helpful, what I am wondering in conversations I've had with some other folks, they would probably draw their schema a little bit differently, or they would say, no, I agree with this, but I think that the things that I would say are, are essential to the gospel are the things that you have placed in the doctrines that are important, but but not worth separating over or doctrines that are that are that are unimportant. So I, you know, I'm thinking here, for example, here you you gave, you know, instrumentation and worship the, as an area that is being that fourth category. You know, obviously there are people within and, and there are people, there's difference of opinion within the churches of Christ, but there are people within the churches of Christ who would say, maybe that's not a category one, but it seems to be a category two. It's certainly a denominational distinctive that they would put in a similar category to to baptism or communion that churches may denominationally divide over, but that there's still kind of Christian Christian unity above that. I'm wondering, how do I avoid being just, you know, denomination, <laughs> you know, just saying the way, the, not just the views my denomination takes on these issues are important, but the things that my denomination thinks are important are more important than the things that your denomination thinks are important. Mm. So it's not just a matter of where you fall, but an issue of, of what your church over time and has understood to be either one of those representative issues or just a big issue. How do you check yourself to say that's not an issue of being of theological triage, that is, that is just a way of being Presbyterian, or that's just a way of being Baptist? 
Well, I, I do worry about this, and, and certainly it's true. We're all influenced by our own traditions, and we all have blind spots. And you, you can just picture me, especially when I wrote the chapter on secondary doctrines, just nervously <laughs> writing at my desk right. here because I'm just so aware. I'm making judgment calls. These judgment calls are very fallible. I just assume I've gotten something, something wrong. That's why I always get a little bit nervous when people respond to the book by saying, oh, totally agreed with everything you said. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm kind of shocked. I'm not sure that. I agree with everything I said. Yeah, yeah exactly. seriously. I mean, even six months after reading the book, I think, you know, I would have emphasized this point a little differently or something like that because we're in the nuances in this book. I think the only solution I know is that we just, is what I emphasize in the conclusion to the book, which is humility, one aspect of which will be dialogue. Sometimes when we talk to other Christians, we go into the conversation with the assumption of, okay, I kind of already know what the, what the truth is, but I'll, but we'll talk. And humility is when you we approach, somebody once said, we're not really listening unless we're open to being changed by what we hear. I think humility is when we have dialogue with Christians in a different tradition than our own, and we are honestly asking the Holy Spirit to show us, where are my blind spots? I can learn that from talking to this other precious member of the body of Christ. And so one thing that might help us on this, obviously we're not going to be perfect until heaven, but one thing that can help us, I think, is just learning the, the wonderful skill of listening, particularly outside of our little tribe. Find someone who just thinks differently than you. You'll know that by the fact that sometimes what they say annoys you <laughs> or gets under your skin or something mm -hmm. like that, and listen and do what Atticus Finch does in the book To Kill a Mockingbird, namely genuinely try to put yourself in their shoes and see the world through their eyes. That is one of the most wonderful skills to learn in life. And I hope as a church, we can, we can do better at that. We have every reason to be that way in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point, Gavin, that <laughs> it only accounts if you're listening, if that person has kind of rubbed you the wrong way a little bit on some of the things that they believe, because mm. otherwise what <laughs> How have you actually challenged yourself in any way, shape, or form? Well, just as we conclude our conversation, I would just love if you wanted to take a gamble of what you think are going to be some of the hot button topics in the future and things that you will want to really challenge American Christians to listen to each other on. I feel very limited in my abilities to look down into the future. But one gen very general area that I just wonder about in light of the fragmentation that we see happening in our culture, and then also I would say in evangelicalism to some extent, and then also in light of the current challenges of all that's gone on in the world in the year 2020 thus far. And I'm hoping and praying that the latter half of this year will be uh, not so bad as so much of what we've experienced thus far. I wonder if there will just be a need for new coalescing around the gospel. There's been so much disintegration and so much cynicism, so much loneliness. There's so much struggle right now. I just can imagine that there will be value in Christians in years ahead regrouping together amidst a culture that in some respects is becoming more secular, amidst cultural dynamics that in various other ways as well are challenging to the church, coming together and really taking seriously what we've talked about already a little bit in this podcast, the call for Christians to stand together. There's a incredible power when we come together for something greater than just our own tribe. And I think the gospel calls us to that. I think Jesus prayed for that in John 17. I think Jesus spoke to that in John 13. I think the apostle Paul calls for that clearly, repeatedly in his epistles. 
We are to love one another and serve one another within the body of Christ. That may not mean being a part of the same church. That's why a book like mine is trying to speak to these things on different levels, but it should mean something. We should want to be together. And so I just look down the road and say, and the prayer is, Lord, how can we move towards one another in the body of Christ and stand together as much as possible? Well, thank you, Gavin, for joining our show. I appreciate all the perspective and thought that you've really taken as you approach these really challenging issues. For people who have their own opinions about you know, being in discussion with Christians who you do not agree with, please send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com or also on Twitter at CT Podcast. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, are you able to go and share us a quick one? I am able to go. Listen, Morgan, fact of the matter is, is I, I've been kind of been working since we recorded the last podcast. There have been <laughs> moments of joy, but I will say I'm still riding high off of this nice haul of board games that I got uh, for my <laughs> birthday and for mm-hmm. my daughter's birthday. On this podcast before, I have talked about the best board game of all time, a game called Scythe. For my daughter's birthday, she, her birthday is the day after mine, she got a game called My Little Scythe, which is a family-friendly, scaled-down version of Scythe. Now, Scythe, is, it, it can be a little complicated, and, and you can play it, you know, with with kids, but my little size brings things a little bit simpler and also scales down some of the attackiness of size a little bit. So it's not just like a kid's version. It's really kind of like a family friendly version. You know, I have folks in my family who, who really don't like attacky games uh, all that much. There's still some combat. They've turned the, the combat in this into pie fights. It's a little bit more light, a little bit more fun rather than giant mechanical tanks attacking each other. Fantastic, fantastic game. My little size was a huge hit for the family so we will be i am wondering ted if we need to rename this segment to just like ted's Pre- board game corner ted's <laughs> board game reviews uh, you know that that wouldn't work as a you know ct would never sponsor my board game podcast but people would many, send little, you many more board games right as, i mean that as, would be the fun thing that's that's right maybe i can you know contact the board game publishers and say yeah i need a review copy of this that would be that would be key no i'm not doing that board games give me joy what can i say especially in this covid era they're great so how about you, Morgan? Uh, you are you are in joyful areas right now with beautiful mountains and whatnot. I, I guess my precious moment relative to the trip that I'm taking right now has just been to seeing the mountains. Some of my coworkers know that I went on a run this morning. I have to say, time zone thing is very confusing. To like my computer has not changed times, so <laughs> I'm in Pacific time, but I'm like when like is it not? almost two o'clock right now. It's not almost two o'clock right now in Pacific time, but whatever. All of you guys are on Pacific or on Central Time. So anyway, I woke up this morning early at 445 again because of everything. And I saw the sun coming up over the mountains. It was beautiful. And then I slept for one more hour and then I went on a run. Aside from my, I guess I'm just gonna take ownership over this. My own ability to like understand how backcountry roads work. <laughs> It was great. I mean, I also like running on hills too, and you can't really run on hills in Chicago. Just everywhere you look, you know, the light in the morning is so gorgeous. There's just all these like beautiful open spaces and trees everywhere. It's just being here in the Pacific Northwest, I think, that is making me very happy. That is my precious moment. People can find me. I'm at MEPAYNL. All right, Gavin, you got it. Well, I can relate to both of what you guys have said because I also love board games and also have thought a lot about living in 
Chicago versus the West Coast because it's the <laughs> most recent move we had from Chicago suburbs to Ojai. But mine is having to do with my kids. I have four kids, ages from two months up to seven. They all give me so much joy, but my two-year-old in particular loves to wrestle every night before bed. And he's a little boy who gives me so much joy as he is 100% enthusiastic about it without any inhibition. He just laughs all in to the point where I actually wear a mouth guard so that he won't chip any teeth because he sometimes doesn't know his own boundaries. <laughs> but we have it, it's, it's so joyful to see his zest for life and his laughter. So my kids give me a lot of joy. The laughter is the best, right? They're just like so gleeful. Yes, exactly. All right, everyone. Gavin, where can people find you outside of this podcast? I have a website. It's just gavinortland.com. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Those are probably the first and best spots. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. Lumia Shola does the transcript. And the music is by Sweets. And if you want to support the show, order cc.com slash podcast. Take our podcast survey, which is christianitoday.com slash podcast survey. It'd be great. That's a huge way you can help us. And you can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you everyone for listening to this and we will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.